A warning, this podcast includes violence, graphic details, and conversations about serious mental illness. April 12th, 2021, five hours, 29 minutes, 11 seconds. Sir, we have a bad Hello? connection. Where are you at? 3583 Wild Horse? Yes. Wonderful. I can just go attack the stuff. This man calling 911 is frantic. Okay, what's going on there? So frantic that the operator can't understand how to help. Okay, what? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm having a hard time understanding you. What did he do? After a few more moments, she started piecing things together. I said one of our clients just attacked us. The caller says he's an employee at a group home, and one of the residents was trying to attack him and his co-worker. They bolted outside. Okay, okay, we have help on the way. They're still outside the house, that resident still inside, when the operator sent a squad car. Okay, yes, we have officers on the way right now. Does anybody need medical? Do you need the paramedics to come out and check on you? No, not yet. We're outside, running. Just the police. You just need the police? Okay. But once those officers got there, they'd realize how wrong that employee was. That this call for help was far worse than anyone could have imagined. So our big story tonight, a 12 News I-Team exclusive. Police swarming a house on a quiet Gilbert Street. And that the suspect has a big secret. Definitely didn't think that I was living next to a murderer. There's been incidents at that same house like quite a bit before. They should be shutting that home down, in my opinion. I'm about to tell you a story of a house in suburbia hiding a dark history. Because we don't know who's there, why they're there. And what was in place to keep them safe. And introduce you to those brave enough to speak about what happened on the inside. He hated it. I, I, I hated it. It wasn't what we expected. A mystery that took me back nearly two decades and sent me searching for answers across Arizona, all the way to Hawaii and to the top levels of government. Silence and a lack of transparency only tell me that maybe there's more to the story that we don't know. Questioning whether one of Arizona's most vulnerable populations is really safe and whether those charged with caring for people are playing by the rules. I think this is a system that let both of them down. I'm Erica Stapleton, and this is Locked Inside. This is episode one, Murder at Tilda Manor. To start, we're going to take a step back so I can tell you a story about love and just how painful it can be. The thing that I always remember is the smile. It was the smile in and of itself that made people happy. This is Nicole Williams. She's talking about her first husband, Stephen Howells. Infectious, and not just his mouth. I mean, his whole face and eyes would light up. And behind that smile was a caring and warm and smart and amazingly creative man. The pair met in Hawaii in 1993. We were both heading on the bus to the same place, and he had this gorgeous, long, curly hair. And so I smiled, and we started talking and started dating from there. Five months later, they'd be married. 
She was 17, and he would have been about 22. We were young, and so there was always financial struggle, especially in Hawaii where it's so expensive to live. But um, it, it was great. He was very involved in the music business. He had gone to Art Institute of Seattle to study music. So um, he did sound mixing for a lot of concerts and a recording studio in Hawaii. Um, he played saxophone and keyboards and was part of the band Red Session there. And uh, had a couple of friends he'd go do jazz improv with for just hours by the beach. Nicole said Stephen studied sound engineering in Seattle and could work in graphic design before they met. It was right before the whole grunge thing hit. So he worked with Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and several of those bands when they were, you know, doing larger club acts in Seattle. And when he went back to Hawaii and met Nicole, he was living his dream of working in the music industry. You know, he he never had the goal of being the front man leading the act. Um, He did play in the band Red Session. He played saxophone in there. But he loved being behind the scenes and doing the music mixing and recording and helping from the back end, being able to put music out. But about a year into their marriage, Nicole started noticing a shift. At first, it was small things. And he would make little comments that were just a little off. Um, They started progressing more. Uh, We had a, a park that we would walk by, and he started talking to me about a frog he met there. And the conversations he was having with this frog Um, But it took me a little bit to realize that it wasn't just him talking. He was hearing the frog talk to him. Nicole said he started experiencing delusions. That was one of the first ones that really stood out. um, And it started affecting his work. She saw him get worse over time. And his aspirations of working in the music industry gradually devolved into just trying to get by day by day. And despite trying, help was hard to come by. And he still had so many dreams and things that he wanted to do. And as the years went by, the reality in himself that those were probably not going to happen set in. And goals became living on his own or being able to keep the job that he had a convenience store, or, you know, um, we have a couple friends who knew him back then. We felt for a long time that we were kind of the only ones outside of his family who knew him, the him that was inside, outside of this disability. And so it, it has been really hard on that and watching him struggle struggle with medications and start getting a little better and then those wouldn't work and kind of the yo-yoing up and down in his mental health. The yo-yoing became too much for both of them. They divorced in 1994. Was his mental health one of the reasons that led to the split? That was the reason for the split. Uh, And I've always carried a lot of guilt for that, but I was 17 at the time. I had no skills or knowledge on how to help with that. After the split, Nicole and Stephen kept in touch, but it wasn't easy. Stephen would eventually move to Arizona, where his parents were. 
Nicole said he'd try staying in places like group homes with supported living. We talk on the phone when he was doing good. When the meds would kind of stop working, he would disappear. And then if he got on something new and it would stop working, he would call me. And eventually he just felt that he was holding me back from living my life. So he stopped the connection. Nicole estimates it's been about 10 to 15 years since she last talked with Stephen. She got remarried, became a mom, and now lives in Colorado. But she never stopped thinking about her first love. She'd even try to look for him whenever she went back to Hawaii, just to check in. I would check the Social Security death index once a year to see if he showed up. Um, At times, I go back to Hawaii because I still have family there. I would walk through a lot of the homeless shelters and things like that in case he was out on the street, making sure he's okay. That was the main thing. We wanted to know he was okay and safe. Nicole had no way of knowing that Stephen was living in that Gilbert group home police were called to on April 12th, 2021. And on that day, Stephen wasn't okay. And it would be a while before anyone realized what happened to him. So I work pretty early in the morning, so I was up. Uh, my dog, he's pretty much on alert all the time. So this is James. He lives right next door to the group home, run by a company called Tilda Manor. He sees a lot around his neighborhood. My room actually sits on the second floor of the home, and it faces the outside, where I can literally see the front street, see their driveway, um, as well as the back gate. Tilda Manor is in a quiet neighborhood. It's a two-story beige house with big windows. Every time I've driven by, the blinds are typically drawn. A fence wraps around the backyard, and a gold van with the group home's name and number sits in the driveway. The house blends right in with the rest of the street, the kind of block where an HOA makes sure your trees are trimmed and lawns are mowed. Group homes aren't supposed to stand out in this community. We're in this school district area, nice, Um, family-built homes, um, tight-knit community. One with a lot of kids and an elementary school around the block. I have younger kids out in the street, nighttime, so we don't think anything of it just because, hey, we're in Gilbert, we're in a nice neighborhood. And like James said, his alarm comes early. And so I was up and my dog started growling, so it kind of alerted me to look out the window. This was around 6 in the morning on April 12th. Um, and I saw an officer and a gentleman. I think the gentleman was one of the workers, actually, now that I'm thinking of it this time. I'm kind of approaching the back gate. Um, and no urgency or anything of that nature, but then like a click of a second, um, they started walking back towards the door. And next thing you know, um, the, the gentleman, which I believe to be a worker, jumped over the back gate. Um, officer tried to get over the back gate, wasn't able to, to get over the back gate, ended up going through the front door. Um, it was pretty much locomotion after that. Almost like watching a train wreck. He kept watching as someone hopped the fence and chaos broke out. And at first I thought that it was some type of a chase going on, but the officer was close enough where he could have literally grabbed the gentleman. It didn't seem like that they were in any type of confrontation at all. What James didn't know at the time was that he was witnessing the aftermath of that frantic 911 call from the group home employee. Okay, what's going on there? When police first got there around 5.30 in the morning, two officers parked the car and ambled up to the two group home employees standing in the street. 
Police had been to this house before, and those calls run the gamut. Missing people, assaults, mental health checks, sometimes false alarms. This call would be very different. Body camera footage capturing it all. Okay, what happened tonight? Okay. And, and how did he attack you? Some of the audio in the footage is hard to understand. But like they told the 911 operator, these employees tried to explain that a resident inside the home tried to hurt them, and they ran outside. Okay, and was he in his room when you guys left? The four men walked to the front door, and an officer tried to twist the knob. And then... You guys have a key that's locked. The officers found it was locked, and neither employee had a key. Is there a spare key in the van anywhere? So you guys are the staff? Yeah. Okay, so how are you guys going to get in the house when we leave? At this point, six minutes after the officers arrived, and they still couldn't get inside, one of the officers peered through the window to the left of the front door, and what he saw changed everything. A man lying in a pool of blood on the bedroom floor. Oh, yeah. Can we get a supervisor in route? The officer called for backup, and their pace instantly changed. They needed to get inside. One officer started kicking the door, while the other asked if the employees could hop the fence and get in around the back. Would you be able to hop the fence again and go around the... Yeah. Yeah? Okay. I'll go with him. Okay. Yeah. This is what that neighbor saw unfolding outside his window. One of the employees hoisting himself over the fence and the officer trying to follow while the other officer kept trying the front door. Eventually, one of the residents opened the door for the officers. And both officers go inside. At this point, the body camera video is redacted by police and goes black. But we can still hear what the officers were doing. This thing was walking around, be careful. Yeah. Looking out for any threat inside as they quickly and carefully tried to get to the person bleeding in the bedroom. The officers don't know what happened, but the man they saw from the window with blood coming from his head was lying on the floor and he wasn't moving. They started what sound like chest compressions hoping for any sign of life as more help raced to the scene. Keep the door open fire's gonna come. They're gonna try something, okay? Another resident peeked out of their room and tried to talk to the officers. Hello, hey, how are you doing? Huh? How are you doing? Are you what? How are you doing? I'm doing good. Good, good. We're just uh, working on your friend over here. You just stay in your room. Oh, sorry. Their focus stayed on this man. Until one of the officers noticed something else. There's something in the shower right now. Gotcha. Swap for your stuff, okay? Yep. There's blood coming from the bedroom. A trail of blood leading them to a closed door. It turned out to be the bathroom, and the shower was running. You know what? Somebody probably walked up through this and went into the bathroom and took a shower. Yeah. That's what happened. So whoever... Is in the shower is going to actually walk through this. They stayed with the injured man. Just two said the full crew. And asked for only two of the fire crew to come into the house so they could start moving toward that bathroom and whoever might be using the shower. Then 
the door opened. Part of this audio is redacted by Gilbert police, so we can't hear what's being said in these initial moments with the person in the bathroom. But about a minute later, the audio came back. Hey, Valdez. Yeah. Can you uh, get us a towel, please? What? Can you get us a towel? The man just got out of the shower. And as soon as the man is covered from the waist down, the body camera video turned back on. It's blurry due to police redaction, but you can see what appeared to be a man standing in the bathroom doorway, trying to put on a shirt. What's your name, sir? Chris. Chris. Is that for Christopher? Yeah. Okay. What's your last name, Chris? Christopher Lambeth. The officers asked him to keep putting his clothes on. As soon as Christopher Lambeth is dressed, one of the officers spun him around and put him in handcuffs. The officer guided him back through the halls and toward the front door. The officer walked him outside into a yard teeming with first responders. The officer beelined to a police car and put Lambeth in the back. By the time the firefighters got to the man lying in a pool of blood, it was too late. The chest compressions didn't work. 49-year-old Stephen Howells was declared dead at 5.46 a.m. In that moment, police had no idea who Stephen Howells was. And for months, neither did we. I couldn't find him on Facebook or Instagram. No balloons, pictures, or cards outside the house, like I'd seen at vigils for other victims before. We kept thinking, there had to be someone who knew something about him. And then... I found an obituary online. The first photo you see seemed like it was taken years ago. A young guy with dark eyes and brown hair, half smiling at the camera, wearing a denim jacket with the collar popped. The first few lines said Stephen was born in Hawaii and moved to Arizona in 1998. The comments on this page appeared to be mostly from family or friends who knew him way back when, revealing glimpses of a man once full of life who'd been dealt a really hard hand. This is where I first came across Nicole, and her comments stood out. He never deserved to end like this, she wrote. I am who I am and what I am today because of him, ending with a heartbreaking, I love you always. Our friend, who was his best friend since, I believe, elementary school, we have both kind of looked on our own and shared information. And uh, I don't know how he found it, but he found the obituary. And so he Facebook instant messaged it to me. And a little funny story, my my, uh, 10-year-old son was in trouble and I had just called him to my room to lecture him. And he came in and my husband started saying a few words to him and that popped up. I looked, I started sobbing. My son thought he was in so much trouble because (laughs) his mom just kept crying. (laughs) So, yeah, so um, I had a few really serious days of crying. After all the tears, she started processing how something like this could have happened. That that should have been him. That that should have never happened. 
I worried about things like that happening, but I worried about it on the street, not in some place that's supposed to keep them safe. Nicole said she didn't know what led Stephen to the Tilda Manor group home in Gilbert, why he might have been placed there, or where exactly he was before. What we do know is that Tilda Manor is supposed to provide 24-hour supervision to people who need behavioral and mental health services. That's what their state license says they're supposed to do. But after reading all the police reports, we have a better understanding of how Stephen Howells wasn't kept safe. He was one of nine residents living at the home, three women and six men. Christopher Lambeth had already been there for a few years when Stephen moved in. Other housemates told police the men didn't really know each other. Lambeth would usually keep to himself in his own room. Stephen originally had a roommate, but that person moved out, meaning Stephen had a room to himself too, right by the front door, the same room where officers found him bleeding. The night before he was killed, the two employees clocked in for their overnight shift. They told police it started out quietly. Everyone was in their rooms. They did bed checks around 2 a.m. and noticed Christopher Lambeth was pacing around his room. By 4 a.m., they thought he had gone to sleep. Then around 5 a.m., one of those employees was prepping medications for the residents. When he suddenly heard a fight, he ran toward the living room and saw his coworker struggling with Christopher Lambeth, who wasn't wearing any clothes. Lambeth apparently tried to punch the other employee in the face, and both of the workers ran outside. At first, Lambeth followed them to the driveway, but he ultimately went back inside and locked the door, locking the employees out. It's not clear whether Stephen was attacked before or after the employees got locked out. If anything, I could see him being the person who would stand up and try to calm somebody down or de-escalate him. And although I, I don't know what happened in the room, that would be my bet of what happened. Christopher Lambeth admitted on the scene that he killed him, that he bludgeoned Stephen to death. He later told police he saw Stephen go and use the bathroom. Then he followed Stephen back to his bedroom and started choking him. Lambeth said he didn't know why he did this, and no one else saw what happened. Mr. Lambeth, you're here on a new Superior Court case for one count of murder in the second degree, a class one felony. You will have an attorney assigned to represent you. Christopher Lambeth was booked in county jail and charged with second-degree murder in the death of Stephen Howells. In the court video, it looked like he was virtually appearing before a judge from jail. His face is covered with a mask, but his eyes were wide open, staring at the camera through his glasses, looking through a crack in the doorway of his cell. He didn't say a word, and a judge was doing all the talking. Sir, you have a bond in the amount of $2 million. That is a secured bond, so you can use a bonding agency to assist you. If you do bond out, you'll be released to pretrial services supervision, and you'll be fitted with an electronic monitoring device. This was not how his day was supposed to go, sitting in a jail cell charged with murder. Thank you, sir. April 12th should have been moving day for Christopher Lambeth. Tilda Manor staff told police he'd been in the group home since 2018, although it's not clear when he first moved in. Employees said they never had any problems with him. In fact, he was doing so well at the home that he was set to move into his own apartment at 11 a.m. the morning of the killing. One staff member even told police he could handle it. But when police searched his room, 
they noticed he hadn't packed anything up. It didn't look like he was ready to leave. And it wasn't until he was taken away that most neighbors even learned his name. I talked with about a dozen neighbors in the days after the killing. Most knew the house was a group home, but didn't know why people might have been staying there. And did you have any idea who was at that house over there? Um, no, I mean, we've known about the group home for a long time, and um, at least been here a lot. I just thought it was like, you know, a drug rehab place where you know go before you get back into, you know, after you've been whatever. I thought it was just uh, recovering addicts and, and things of that nature that should have a second chance. And they knew nothing about Christopher Lambeth's history until they put his name into Google, like we did. It turns out that the day of the murder, April 12th, stands out for another reason. We all want to feel safe in our neighborhoods. That 16 years ago, to the day, on April 12th, 2005, Christopher Lambeth was taken to another jail. How do you know they're dead? I killed them. Coming up on Locked Inside. It was just terrific because these people were completely defenseless. Christopher Lambeth's dark history comes to light. But they believed that God would protect them. Christopher Lambeth's sister, or anyone working with or representing Tilda Manor, declined to talk with us at this point in our story. At the time of this recording, Christopher Lambeth's current attorney did not respond to any of our requests for comment. Locked Inside is written and edited by me, Erica Stapleton. Executive producer is Katie Wilcox. Fact-checking is done by 12 News intern Molly McBride. Audio mixing is done by Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland. Locked Inside is produced by the 12 News I-Team and Vault Studios. A special thank you to Will Johnson and Reed Redmond with Vault Studios. If this story resonates with you or you want to share your own experience, you can reach out at connect at 12news.com. We'll catch you next time on Locked Inside.